You're listening to Feral Attraction, hosted by Metrico and Vera the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on the bad science behind campus responses to sexual assault. We discuss why college campuses are taking a wrong approach to reporting and investigating accusations of sexual assault. Our main topic is on sex regret. We talk about what that is, if it's normal, and how to move past it. We close out the show with some feedback and a question on cheating. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So recently, there was a three-part article series that was published in the Atlantic uh, Journal, um, written by Emily Yoff, and it covered the... Uh, we'll say the the issues that campuses, college campuses, especially in the United States, face in the face of sexual assault reporting. Uh, During the Obama administration, there were expansions made to the Title IX uh, offices, which govern sexual discrimination uh, based off of sex uh, on college campuses, and a revamp of sexual assault investigations on college campuses was ordered because at the time there was an epidemic of allegations and accusations going 300, 900, 600 days without investigation or follow-up. So the Obama administration uh, published a series of guidelines. Those guidelines, unfortunately, were rather broad and actually had an opposite effect. Instead of promoting healthy sexual practices on college campuses, it actually has had a chilling effect on individuals seeking sex in the first place. We've spoken about this on the show before, but we wanted to discuss the second article in this series uh, titled The Bad Science Behind Campus Response to Sexual Assault. Uh, there was an article that was written in response to this piece uh, in Reason.com, which was written by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. And we wanted to look at the the faulty neuroscience that is being used and codified into essentially law in an attempt to prosecute and an attempt to curb the the so perceived outbreak of sexual assault on college campuses right and i think you know i'm all for protecting uh classes of individuals who have difficulty protecting themselves and rape victims are probably one of the most stereotypical examples of a class that really demands and requires special treatment and protection because it's a horrible thing to have happened to you obviously and it is a very disempowering thing it's a very invalidating thing and it can be it certainly can be damaging, but what's important to keep in mind is that just because something feels like it should be true, or just because we want something to be true, doesn't make it true. And if we're going to use science or involve science in an argument that we're making, we have to make sure that the science we're proposing or that we're proposing to use as backing for what we're proposing is in fact falsifiable, and that efforts have been made to falsify the hypotheses that we, we are using in this case. And unfortunately, in, in this environment of sexual assault and the idea of sexual assault being this traumatizing, post-traumatic stress-inducing event, 
The science doesn't really back that up nearly as well as people have been led to believe, especially the uh, people on college campuses. And part of this affirmative positive consent movement that's been going on has really tried to, I think, steamroll uh, down people's throats this idea that rape victims are uh, always universally traumatized by their experience and that there's almost something wrong with a rape victim if they are in fact not traumatized by their experience. And this creates a really perverse situation where a victim, in this case a victim of rape, could feel like they are somehow damaged or broken because they don't feel more traumatized than they, they, they actually do feel, because they don't feel post-traumatic stress, because they don't have memory issues surrounding the event, because, you know, any of these things. They're, they're, they're told, well, if you're raped, you're supposed to feel this and this and this and this, and, you know, it's kind of a horrific thing. It's kind of like if somebody were to lose someone and you were basically telling them how to mourn, right? And we would find that to be pretty perverse. But it seems like in the situation of talking about rape victims, we feel entitled to tell them how they're supposed to experience rape, and we act like this is a scientifically proven fact that, you know, basically, hey, it's biology, you're going to experience this. And that's really far from the truth, unfortunately, for a lot of these campus rape uh, programs that have been kind of being pushed lately. And that's really what Elizabeth Nolan Brown uh, delves into in this recent article, right, uh, Metrico? Absolutely. One of the things that I, I do want to stress is the fact that as a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the legislation, in terms of the guidances that are being offered to college campuses is a product of uh, 1980s uh, mythology surrounding trauma. Now, in the 1960s, there, there definitely were issues, uh, in the United States at least, where children who were molested were often treated as being outliers or, or outright liars. And the idea that children that were molested were often lying, trying to find a way to get back at an adult figure they didn't care for, and, and there was a lot of mistrust and a lot of missed opportunities for justice within the 1960s. And this carried on until the 1980s, where pop psychology and the study of PTSD, especially in soldiers, was carried over to victims of sexual assault, especially within childhood. Uh, the idea was that child victims of sexual assault experienced the same variety of PTSD that soldiers did on the battlefield. And so there were extra measures put in place in order to ensure that children who came forward with allegations of uh, molestation were, were given a little bit more of a leeway in their reporting and their, uh, you know, in terms of what happened to them. Right. The burden, the burden of truth was kind of, uh, or the burden of uh, proof, rather, was kind of lowered for rape because it was thought that well you know we can't expect rape victims to be accurate about what their what about the recollection of what happened we can't expect them to have you know resisted the uh, assault we can't expect any of these things because it's a traumatic event and therefore doing expecting those things of that person would be unreasonable in that situation so it was kind of a well-meaning Thing. I know. I think it's really important to keep in sight during this conversation that all this stuff was very well-meaning, right? The idea was to protect rape victims, and that's that's a great thing. But 
like the problem is um, some of that stuff's just not true, right? Right, Metrico? Yeah. You know, it's... I, I've spoken in the past about a little bit about my childhood. I'll go into a little bit more detail because this is actually surprisingly relevant in this case. Um, so my biological parents were... Uh, we'll, we'll call them uh, drug addicts because that's what they were. And one of the means by which they acquired drugs was um, pimping out my siblings uh, who were all under the age of 10. And without giving too much information away because I do kind of want to, to sort of not put the focus on this... Uh, Finally, all of this this activity came to light in a particularly abusive uh, scenario where my sister was nearly uh, beaten to death in front of my brother. And during the the investigation, during the court case, uh, the mentality of the 60s that this was all being fabricated, that we couldn't trust my brother's recollection of the events, that... He was being coached by the prosecution or the therapist that they, all of these sorts of things came into play from the defense, but they were struck down partly due to research that had been done in the field of memory and also due to the fact that it's kind of difficult to strike down physical evidence. And in this case, there were multiple uh, cases of DNA evidence and also I mean, my sister was nearly beaten to death, so you can't really explain that one away. Um, for those curious, my mother is serving a life sentence for what happened. Um, so with situations like this, my brother, and really the, the prosecution in this case, had to fight against the mentality of the 60s without giving in to the mentality of the 80s. Because if you give in to the idea that People who experience a traumatic sexual assault have faulty recollection, have faulty memories. It's very easy within a court of law to then render their evidence, to render their testimony as inadmissible because the burden of proof within a court of law is far higher than what it would be currently uh, as it is on a college campus. So I, I find a little bit of a problem with the way that college campuses treat uh, the the mentality behind sexual assaults. They, they claim that there is this, this uh, neurobiology of sexual assault, which is what uh, they, they like to claim. And this was popularized by Rebecca Campbell, who is a professor of psychology and has given several keynote talks to Title IX administrators. And really, her ideology of the neurobiology of sexual assault has become what is the cornerstone of modern campus sexual assault reporting and investigation. Right. And the problem with that being so dogmatic is that, you know, if you, it kind of creates a circular logic uh, to the point that it's almost impossible to, when, once the, uh, accusa accusation of sexual assault happens, it's almost impossible to find that it didn't happen, right? It, it basically becomes this idea that once someone, once an accusation is made, well, it doesn't matter if the details don't line up. It doesn't matter if there's no actual, you know, facts to the case. The facts don't matter. 
because, well, that person was traumatized and therefore they might not remember correctly or they might not be able to reproduce details or they might, their stories might not match up day to day because, you know, oh, they were traumatized. And so there's this kind of circular logic that comes into play based on this faulty idea of the neurobiology of assault. And I think that's really what the issue is because at the end of the day, for good jurisprudence to be, you know, one of the cornerstones of the bedrock of our country is this idea that, you know, you are innocent until you are proven guilty. And that is being twisted in this, based on this idea of the neurobiology of assault into a presumption of guilt because, well, that person, you know, there's no way to really prove, there's really no way to prove that you were innocent because there's no way to resist the testimony of someone who's, who's making a rape accusation because, well, their testimony doesn't need to be accurate. And that's, it's this, that's, that's actually what the issue is, right? It's this idea that, well, their testimony is irrelevant, essentially. And I think you'll agree with me in this metric, but I feel like that actually robs uh, rape victims of their agency in a strange kind of way, because you're essentially saying that what, what, actually, what they're actually saying, what they say they feel, felt and experienced, doesn't actually matter, because what happened is they were raped. And it's this really weird kind of, I don't really know how to even describe it properly, but it's almost like this double victimization of the rape victim because they're being robbed first of their agency when they're being raped, and then again by the, uh, being robbed of their agency when they're told how they feel, they're, and they're told, well, you've been traumatized, so they're there, we'll take it from here. And that's a really disempowering and validating thing as well because it kind of it's removing their voice and essentially making it such that you know, what their actual felt experiences is no longer relevant to the case. And that I think that's really kind of a bass backwards way of looking at this. I would agree with that because you really can't apply boilerplate sort of logic or a boilerplate style approach when it comes to accusations and the processing of sexual assault. Everybody handles trauma in a separate way. Some people laugh, some people cry, some people freeze, some people act, some people fight, some people flight. Trauma is handled and processed by individuals in so many varying ways that by codifying how it should be processed, how you should react, how you should remember, it definitely does rob the agency of some victims from them because it kind of plays into this ideology that Republicans once had concerning abortion in the case of rape. Well, it has to be a legitimate rape. Well, what is a legitimate rape? You can't codify rape in terms of legitimacy or not because sexual assault is sexual assault. But by saying that there are there is a process that has to be followed for it to be rendered legitimate, it robs people of the ability to essentially make decisions on their own. And on the other hand, it, it enables people who might have regretful feelings or maybe... They had sex and they realized after the fact, well, you know, I probably didn't, you know, I had sex. I don't feel super great about it. There, there are reported cases uh, where people feel that way, where they might be slightly intoxicated, which under court of law, that is permissible. Um, as long as an individual is capable of giving consent and revoking consent, uh, the court of law has stipulated that having a drink or two does not inhibit an individual from from uh, giving consent. There are cases where people are like, well, maybe if I hadn't had that drink, I wouldn't have had sex. And they interpret that within a campus uh, setting as being, well, you were sexually assaulted. 
Right, they're encouraged to round that up, to kind of round up to rape, right? Well, if you're experiencing that, you might actually not even be remembering exactly what happened because you have been traumatized and you've been raped and you need to report this as a rape and you need to... So that's, that, I think that's what the issue is, is this pressure to report everything as rape. And that's not to say that rape doesn't happen or that rape is you know, something we should sweep under the rug. We're not saying that at all. But what, I think the point of our episode this week and this, you know, this top of the show topic is a great lens to introduce the topic and we're kind of segueing into it now a little bit, I feel. Um, but the, the point is that there's, a, there's regretful sex and there's sexual assault, and that those are two different categories of feeling icky about sex you've had. And it's important to remember that regret sex is, in fact, a category, and that it's a, kind of, it's a, cate- it's a, it's a lower-grade ickiness than sexual assault, but we shouldn't be rounding everything up to being sexual assault. Because, frankly... Sexual assault accusations do ruin people's lives, and as we've just been talking about, due to the circular logic that's been presented by this neurobiology of assault, this faulty idea that all sexual assault is traumatizing and results in memory issues and all this, all these you know, associated ideas, the problem with that is that it really kind of invalidates this category of regretful sex as even being a thing, and it basically says if you regret having sex, you were probably raped. I think that's a really dangerous uh, idea and not a, not a road that's constructive or helpful to go down uh, because it really ends up disempowering literally everyone in the situation to the point where uh, you know the, the defense has no defense and the, the accuser is basically is essentially being told, well, you were raped because your memory is no longer relevant. You were raped. <laughs> and so like, it's, it's weird. It's this weird disempowerment on both sides that it doesn't really help anybody. And I think it's really important to kind of step back from that and to look at rape and sexual assault as the heinous crimes that they are, but a lot while also acknowledging that you can have sex and regret it and not have been raped. You know, one other thing, I have a few more points that I want to make on this. Um, this actually hurts this idea, this neurobiology of sex, the uh, entitlements that they have put in place, the policies that they have put in place have actually, uh, in several cases, come back to, to bite colleges in the ass uh they're uh, and and keeping step with the guidelines that they have put in place witnesses who believe that they are witnessing sexual assaults uh can come forward with the accusations and since college instructors are mandatory reporters they then have to report it to the title IX office who then investigated there have been several cases where college roommates might have observed perhaps bdsm and may not be as fully informed in terms of the consensuality of the scene and reported as rape, reported as sexual assault, even when the supposed victim in the case says, no, this was 100% consensual, 1000% consensual, no assault happened here. There is a case in California where this happens, where the victim, the supposed victim in this, um, was having consensual sex with her boyfriend. Her roommate thought it was assault, reported it. Uh, The boyfriend and the supposed victim were separated on campus. He was expelled. She spoke out on his behalf. And the entire time, the Title IX counseling office was telling her that this was behavior systematic of being in a relationship with an emotional abusive individual. And rather than giving her the agency to say, no, I I 100% wanted what happened, uh, they said that her behavior was indicative of a pattern of abuse, and she actually didn't know what she was talking about. 
this is what we talk about when we when we, when we discuss the fact that agency is oftentimes taken away from victims from actual victims of sexual assault i do agree that the process for reporting and the process for finding and convicting people who are guilty of sexual assault should be made less traumatizing to the victims sexual assault is incredibly traumatizing and quite often the investigation into sexual assault can add on to that trauma i do agree with that However, it is important to note that campuses, college campuses, university campuses, do not follow the same guidelines as a court of law. They do not follow the same guidelines on due process. They do not follow the same guidelines on anything when it comes to how it should be handled under a court of law. And this strips the agency from both the uh, individual who has been sexual assaulted as well as the individual that is being accused. And... Because of this, over 60% of these cases where the individual who's being accused of being sexually assaulted and 60% of cases that have then gone on to litigation against the college campus from the accused, 60% of the time, the college is forced to either settle out of court or they are forced to reinstate the student's uh, enrollment, they are forced to make some form of restitution, forced to overturn the finding, or the courts find that the finding is not justified or it is not supported. Most of the time, these uh, college-instituted and uh, initiated investigations into campus assault, when taken to a court of law, do not make it past the the stage where they gather evidence they are not able to find substantive evidence that sexual assault occurred and part of the issue with that is the ideology again going back to this this mentality the how to say the the so campbell who who kind of uh champions the idea of the neuroscience behind sexual assault, the neurobiology behind sexual assault. It is important to note that she is not a neuroscientist. It is important to note that her finding, her, her reporting, her investigation is merely interpreting the works of people in the appropriate fields. And time and time again, the people in those fields have come forward to say that she is talking out her ass. Uh, in talking with experts on memory, they say, hey, um, the way that she refers to memory, um, Richard McNally, who is a leading expert in the, in the U.S. on the effects of trauma on memory, uh, refutes almost every assertion that Campbell makes in her presentation. Says that there is no direct evidence that trauma impacts memory. And in fact, goes on to say that, hey... Trauma and highly stressful scenarios such as witnessing a shooting, witnessing a murder, being uh, present when there is an act of terrorism or sexual assault. Extreme stress enhances memory for the central aspects of an overwhelmingly emotional experience. And time and time again, victims of these situations are able to recount in almost narrative form their ordeals that are chronological, coherent, detailed, and lucid. 
It's weird to me because there's these two competing ideas in psychology that we've known about for a long time, and one of them is being completely left out of the sexual assault discussion. You're familiar with the concept of flashbulb memory. Uh, is that right, Metrico? Yes, that's, that's what that would be, yes. Yeah, flashbulb memory is this concept in psychology that's been around for a long time, and it's a really well-studied phenomenon that people actually have almost crystal clear memories of things that are traumatizing to them in many cases because of the fact that they're traumatizing. For example, many people can remember exactly where they were and what they were doing when John F. Kennedy was shot or when uh, bombs fell over uh, Hiroshima if you were Japanese or when Pearl Harbor was attacked or when the towers fell on 9-11. People can remember exactly what they were doing and exactly what was happening in almost like complete narrative detail to the point where they, you know, they remember smells, sights, you know, exactly what they were eating. I mean, almost ridiculous levels of detail. And so that's called flashbulb memory. And it's thought that this is a, that's something that the human brain does because it's really important to remember things that are horrifically traumatizing so that you can maybe avoid them in the future, right? It kind of makes sense that you'd remember those things because you'd want to really study that incident and try to avoid it. It's kind of a life preservation thing, right? It makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If something traumatizes you to almost feel like a near-death experience, you're going to want to avoid doing whatever produced that again. And what better way to do that than have a really great memory of that incident so that you can study it and kind of you know, work on not reproducing those circumstances, right? Now, the theory that Campbell posits is that memories are stored on basically post-it notes. And whenever trauma occurs, the desk that all these post-it notes is, are, are, are located on gets shuffled around and memories get scattered. And so there are gaps and it's difficult to piece them together. So if things are not in chronological order, that's, that makes sense. It's this op- opposing idea. It's not that we have the ability to recall idea. It's this idea of fragmented traumatic memories that are meant to be represented as infallible. But the problem is, whereas flashbulb memory is a really well-studied phenomenon that has evidence behind it, this traumatic stress-induced scattering of memory is kind of a untestable hypothesis that, to my knowledge, has never really been verified much at all. It's just an idea. And this just an idea seems to have just completely taken over without being tested vigorously, or rigorously, I mean, at all. Like, not, not at all. So I think that's really the issue. Is that it's kind of staggering how little this idea has been tested. And based on that, we're kind of just incorporating it into public policy as if it's this like established fact, and it just isn't. And I think that's really what the issue is here. She, she claims that that's a side effect of what's called tonic immobility. Now, tonic immobility is something that we have studied in animals, especially farm animals and some sharks. Uh, for example, if you put a chicken's head down to the ground and you draw a line in the dirt pointing out a straight line from the beak and extending a few feet the chicken will remain in place for you know 30 seconds up to three hours it's this idea that when put in a state of panic certain animals have an evolutionary trait that causes them to freeze the idea is by freezing it causes the predator to sort of think, oh, hey, the thing that I have in my jaw is dead so I can relax a little bit, and it increases the chance that the animal might be able to escape. And sharks, if you flip some of them upside down, I think tiger sharks are the most commonly studied. Um, If you 
if you put one upside down, they freeze and they can kind of sit in place. Uh, great white sharks, uh, stingrays. If you stroke the underbelly of a trout for a minute, it stops moving and you can actually throw it onto the ground and it won't move. The thing is, is that tonic immobility is something that is understudied within hum humans. It's something that we don't have any form of actual evidence. Um, there have been studies done, and Campbell does sort of point to these studies. The issue is that all of these studies are based off of preliminary findings. They are not peer-reviewed, and they are incredibly limited in terms of sample size, and there are many, many problems with how they are conducted. Uh, and one of them, it's they assembled, I believe, 30 uh, female victims of uh, sexual assault, and they asked two questions that were incredibly leading. And that's the study that Campbell uses primarily. And she likens being frozen in place to tonic immobility. Uh, she said that if you're frozen in place, congratulations, you are in an extended catatonic state, tonic immobility. And that's incorrect. Humans have been observed to freeze in place when something traumatic happens. If we look at the, uh, we'll look at 9-11. If you look at footage from the ground of people that were there, you can see that everybody sort of looks up and freezes, but that only lasts for a second, two seconds before people start going, okay, we need to move away from this place. Tonic immobility is understudied and it hasn't been proven and quite honestly it's something that can't be proven because you would have to replicate the exact circumstances of the traumatic experience which is highly unethical you wouldn't be able to replicate sexual assault without actually committing sexual assault and it's difficult to to ask inquiries to a victim simply because of the fact that the questions are often very leading and by you know implanting the idea in an individual's head you can often cause them to kind of go along with what you are saying uh, in the 80s this idea was repressed memories that psychologists were convinced that a lot of individuals were hiding trauma underneath you know layers of memories and by engaging in yeah, some forms of psychosis, uh, you know, uh, how to say psychotic, not psychotic. Um, what, what is the word I'm thinking of here, Vero? Um, Psychedelic? Like, uh, like, it's, it's, it's the medical, like, hypnosis, like, uh, they, they would undergo, like, hypnosis uh, in order yeah, I should, to... I, I think I get what you're getting at, yeah, right. Um and that that yeah exactly so it's kind of this idea of like almost plant, planting memories right because you're right. you're you're in a susceptible state you're putting them in a susceptible mm -hmm. state that's kind of what it, what yes. it comes down to and the issue was in a lot of those cases um the memories that were implanted or the memories that were suggested while under the state which you're with somebody that you trust you're with somebody that you know is there to help you not to hurt you some of these memories were found to be false and a lot of these psychologists uh, were taken to court over them because some of the memories were like, oh, hey, your father sexually assaulted you when you were younger. And 20 years later, now you can remember now. Hooray. And it tore families apart and people sued and no evidence was brought forward. And 
these psychologists were held legally liable for basically implanting lies in people's minds. The issue is that tonic immobility in humans can't really be studied. The most recent study that I was able to find happened in Sweden in 2015, and again, preliminary, and again, inconclusive. We can't really study this effect. It is quite possible that it happens, but we can't effectively or ethically study it. Yeah, and I think part of the issue here, too, is uh, there's this idea that, I mean, it makes perfect sense uh, that, you know, if you're being raped, relaxing and giving in to the rape, if it's, it becomes, if you, if you arrive at the idea that, okay, I'm going to be, I'm getting raped, this is inevitable, I'm going to relax now so that I can experience this without being under tension the entire time, but my body, if it's under tension, is going to, it's going to be much more painful to be raped. I mean, I mean, speaking as people who, I mean, I've, I've bottomed before and I've, I've bottomed, you know, in, in a way that is kind of a pseudo-rape type scenario, and that's, it makes, it's something that naturally you'll do, right? If you know you're going to be, you're getting fucked harder than you like, relaxing rather than resisting makes it feel less painful, and so you're going to do that. But I think what ends up happening in these situations is a lot of the times that natural instinct to relax when you're being subjected to something like regressively painful and so that you experience it a little bit less painfully is being conflated with the idea of tonic immobility. And it's this idea that, oh, well, if you relaxed during, during, during the sex, that means that you had this traumatic event happen to you and therefore you were raped. And that's, that's actually kind of inverting what's actually happening, right? Oftentimes, what you're, it's a conscious choice to relax. And it, you know, the fact that you're doing that is definitely going to make the situation perhaps less traumatic overall, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're now going to have these scattered memories because of tonic mobility. So it's just, I think it's kind of, again, kind of a rounding things up into, oh, you relaxed during aggressive sex or during sex you didn't want, therefore you were raped, and therefore you're going to have these this traumatic scattering of your memories. And I think that's just conflating a whole bunch of things that aren't the same thing. And maybe looking to the animal world for analogies there isn't so helpful, because as humans we do have this conscious level where we you know we determine our behaviors a bit more actively than animals do, and humans don't automatically relax in that way, but they can choose to, which is a natural defense mechanism against being subjected to rape, is to relax. So, you know, I think that's, and we don't, this is anecdotal, of course, we don't really have the evidence to, to know exactly what, to what degree it's conscious and to what degree it's this involuntary tonic immobility that's happening. But my hunch, based on how I've experienced, uh, I mean, I've actually been sexually assaulted myself, if I were full disclosure there, um, when I was younger, about like when I was in my teen, teenage years, and also like, you know, I've, like I said, I've, you know, been in situations of pseudo-rape where, you know, that just, it's kind of the goal is to re- almost recreate that for erotic reasons. And in those situations, you can choose to relax, and that's, that's different than tonic immobility. So, you know, we need to understand, and we, unfortunately, it's very difficult to understand to which degree the conscious relaxing and tonic immobility are contributing in the situation. But unfortunately, again, for ideological reasons, it seems, a lot of people in this, you know, rape culture sort of conversation are insisting that tonic immobility is the driving force here. And unfortunately, we just don't have that data and we, we can't support that idea with science. Yes. And because it's an idea that we can't support, that we can't back, that we can't peer review, and we can't point to specific markers, it shouldn't be put in as a legal guidance. That's my point. Because it's something that in case and case and case and case again, where it has gone from 
the Title IX officer at a college that has expelled a student to a court of law. The courts have upheld the, the rights of the defendant, the rights of the accused, more than 60% of the time. We are not saying, and, and I want to stress this, we're not saying that sexual assault doesn't happen on campuses, and I don't want to give off that impression. Sexual assault does happen. Sexual assault is traumatic. Sexual assault framed much of my childhood and my formative years. And it's something that I've seen firsthand how it impacts people's lives. And it's something that we should be conscious of, and it's something that we should be supportive of victims. It is something that we should find a means by which we are able to, as you know, compassionate, ethical humans, find a way to protect those who are made vulnerable. That's what we should be looking at. But by using faulty science, by using unproven science, and by using fallacy, we open victims up to never being able to have justice in their lives. We want to close these, these loopholes of untruth, and we want to do it in a way that provides agency to people. We want to do it in a way that promotes healing, and we want to do it in a way that promotes ethical sex in a way. This trend on college campuses, as I said earlier, has had an incredibly chilling effect on how people seek out sex. It's in my state. It is law that if you have had any part of an alcoholic beverage, you are no longer capable of giving consent if you are a college student. And that leads to absurd results like, well, what if both people are drunk? Does that mean they raped each other? I mean, that's the problem with this type of zero-tolerance uh, approach to these situations. Applying black and white rules to situations that are pretty much universally gray tends to result in really absurd uh, conclusions. And I think we need to be concerned about that because in many cases when alcohol is involved in a sexual assault situation, it's usually the case that both the male and the female are you know, assuming it's heterosexual, have been drinking, or both the penetrator and the penetrated have been drinking. And it's a little bit sexist and strange to conclude that, well, the male raped the female if they've both been drinking, because, well, then in that case, neither of them was able to consent to the sex, right? So how does that work? <laughs> it, 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 should come, it, it comes down to the initiator, I suppose. But, I mean, who's to say exactly what counts as initiation in that situation either? And it gets to be this really messy argument. And... That's why I think, you know, involving those types of zero tolerance rules just makes the situation worse and harder to resolve in a, in a way that is just and fair. And, and we need to be able to turn a, you know, critical lens on the specific situation and to evaluate the evidence in a specific situation without applying all these well-meaning, but I think, you know, honestly, usually backfiring sorts of zero tolerance policies when it comes to things like alcohol during, uh, with the issue of consent, right? And then there are even further sorts of issues that kind of get into more of our main topic for this episode, where a lot of people view college as a means by which to experiment. Some people might experiment with their sexuality. Some people might find themselves in new places and able to have new different types of sexual experiences. Um, a lot of people may grow up in small towns where you don't have many minorities and we've seen case after case where title IX sexual assault reporting has been used 
when people regret having sex with a minority, and this happens a lot of the time, especially against black men. A lot of the cases that have been appealed in a court of law and have been basically said that the accused uh, was deprived of their civil liberties were black men being accused of rape when all signs and all evidence pointed to it not only being consensual, but in some cases the actual event being fabricated. We're seeing it used in a racist capacity. We're seeing it used in a homophobic or a transphobic capacity as well, where people who might say, I don't know, maybe I'm bi-curious, let's have sex with a dude, and then they find out they don't like it. It's sometimes easier for people to save face to claim sexual assault than it is to just say, well, I experimented and I didn't like it, we're going to move on with life. Well, the other issue is, it, I mean, yes, I 100% support statistics being which are factual. Female assault on, on men is rarer than male assault on women, for obvious reasons. Obviously, men have more uh, physical strength and most of, most of the time in, in these situations it's easier for a male to overpower a female etc 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 that being said female sexual assault of males does happen and it's important to remember that and to to look at that because again if we get these situations where well alcohol was involved therefore it's sexual assault therefore it's the male's fault that's a very slippery slope and it really it, it can really result in the victim again being victimized a second time if they're both raped and then accused of raping the other person right i mean that that's actually a, that can be a, another one of the absurd results that can happen in these situations and yes statistically speaking it's far more likely that the male raped the female probably you know based on the fact of the raw facts of what we know but our justice system isn't based on statistics and prosecuting pe- pe- people based on whether they're likely to be guilty. Again, that's not how it works, right? We have this presumption of innocence until proven guilty, and we can't play the numbers in that way. It's not really fair or just to do. And we have to look at the specifics of the individual case, and that's where I think all the stuff ends up falling short, is it really prevents people who are set up to adjudicate these matters, it prevents them from investigating or looking into the actual specifics of the case at hand. Instead, they're applying these arcane rules saying, okay, alcohol was involved, therefore X, uh, you know, or, you know, trauma was involved, therefore Y. And that is a not a good way, uh, in my opinion, of adjudicating these rape allegations. And I think we need to be a bit smarter about it and a bit wiser about it and to really narrowly focus in on the specifics of the situation and not try to apply these universals that don't have a strong backing from science. Right, and I completely agree with that. It's we need to promote a culture of healthy, ethical, enthusiastic consent. Um, We don't need to give in to the ideas of South Park where it's just this social justice thing where everybody has to collect signed waivers for every sexual activity that happens and... Uh, I found that to be incredibly disturbing that they view that obtaining consent to have sex was likened to, you know, getting parental consent to to attend a field trip. Um, We need to promote cultures of healthy communication and healthy decision making. And when we approach it from a scientifically unsound trajectory... What ends up being the result is a culture that sex is chilled. 
it's being found that college students are having less and less sex and a lot of it has to do with this fear that they can be reported and have their lives ruined for sexual assaults that uh, allegations of sexual assaults and it's imp- with with the media circus with title IX mandatory reporting with everything that goes around it, it's impossible for a lot of the individuals who are found innocent of these allegations to find enrollment at another college university to be able to move away without any kind of anything following them. It's disturbing. It's incredibly disturbing to me. And again, I don't want to say, and I'm not saying, that we need to chill the ability for victims of sexual assault and or to report that they were sexually assaulted that's incredibly important people who are sexually assaulted need to have the ability to report what has happened to them to seek justice and to seek the treatment and the help that they deserve but we don't want to open the floodgates like we already have to where There are no strict guidelines, there are no strict definitions, and there is no science that can be backed in terms of what is being handled on college campuses. Quite frankly, these Title IX adjudicators are judge, jury, and executioner all in one person, and because of this, there's no due process. There's no ability for students to appeal, there's no ability for the accuser to uh, to to confront the accused, and it's promoting a negative sort of campus environment that hurts everybody. So it's important that we take a closer look at the rules that are being enacted on college campuses to ensure that we are not trivializing one of the most severe and traumatizing crimes that can happen against a person. Unfortunately, that has been the case. It's a difficult topic to discuss. It genuinely is, because this is a topic that people feel very strongly about. There are a lot of people that support the current legislations, that support the current rulings and orders and guidances that are given to college campuses. And I can understand that. And I agree that this was a good faith sort of attempt. This was made with the best of intentions, but we are finding that the best of intentions are currently leading to some of the worst results. This has an incredibly negative impact on sexual health, on sexual communication, on sexual experimentation, discovery, self-discovery, self-agency, on so many areas, and it's based simply off of faulty science. It is important that we remedy that. When we remedy that, we're able to then find appropriate rulings that allow for victims of sexual assault to gain that justice and to take away the loopholes and to take away the ability for those who are sexually abusive assholes to take away the ability of rapists to find means by which they can escape justice. That is a side effect of what is happening as well. We need to take a closer look at this. Part of what this episode is, and why we decided to speak about this at the top of the show, is we're talking about regret sex or sex regret. It's, it's when you have sex with somebody and you realize, well, you know, that wasn't everything I wanted it to be. I sort of regret having sex. 
it's important to note that regret sex, sex regret, whatever you might want to call it, and sexual assault are two incredibly different things. Sex regret is the regret that you have about sex that you just didn't enjoy for some reason. That after it was said and done, you're like, I didn't really, I couldn't give that a 10 out of 10. I couldn't give that five stars on Yelp. Wasn't a fan. Sexual. Uh, would not, would not, yeah, would not exactly. do again. Hindsight 2020, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. Whereas sexual assault is entirely different. It is something that is not consensual. It is something that you did not give your enthusiastic consent. It is something that you did not want. And in cases where that has happened, we 100% are behind the idea that you need to report it to the authorities, have this investigated, seek the help, seek the support that you need. Seek whatever assistance you need in those circumstances. But it is important to note that sex regret is an entirely different class of things. In cases of sex regret, you're more or less kind of in the majority of people. So sex regret, we can break it down kind of simply. Um, here are some reasons you might have sex regrets um, after you have a sexual encounter with an individual, with a group of people. Um, maybe you slept with an ex and you're like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Maybe you had unprotected sex and you don't want to have unprotected sex. Uh, the sex wasn't great. It was not fantastic sex. It was two out of ten. You, you weren't a fan of it. Uh, Maybe you're looking for a one-night stand and the morning after they want a relationship. Uh, maybe you don't like one-night stands and you're kind of sad at yourself that you had one. Maybe you cheated and you're upset with yourself and you regret having that sex. These are cases where you can consent. And most of the time you do consent. There are times where you do not consent and that is when it bridges the gap into being sexual assault territory. So it is important to draw the line there. So one thing that I do kind of want to say is that sex regrets after one night stands, and we're going to categorize this as one night stands. Um, sex regret, for the record, happens in long-term romantic relationships. Maybe you didn't, you were like, oh, I'm feeling a bit sick and I had sex and I really didn't want to and I kind of regret it because it made me feel a little bit sicker, but it's, you know, whatever. Or maybe the sex wasn't awesome. My husband wasn't really putting his all into it. Whatever that might be, it happens in romantic relationships as well. But we're going to be focusing on one night stands because that tends to be more prevalent when it comes to the idea of regret sex or, or sex regrets. Um, it is incredibly common. It is incredibly normal to have. I've experienced regret sex. Have you experienced regret sex, Metrico? Oh, absolutely. I actually would say that I experience regret in the majority of times that I have one-night stands because, frankly, I think this is why it's so common. People tend to be much more open to sex with people when they are really, really horny than they are when they're not so horny. And when you look back on the situation, having just came and no longer feeling so horny... That guy that you just fucked or whose dick you just sucked might not look quite so attractive after you just finished, right? <laughs> and that's pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah, and actually there's interesting studies about that that I'll get into uh, in just a little bit. 
I mean, for me, it's I'm not a big fan of one night stands, and typically, whenever I have had one in the past, I tend to regret it because I'm looking for more of an emotional, uh, mental compatibility as opposed to a physical connection when it comes to potential partners. And I sort of beat myself up a little bit, going, I could have abstained from having sex, but here I am, and it's not really something that I wanted. I am okay that I had it, but. I sort of regret having sex with this person because now it feels like I've cheapened the relationship or the potential connection that I could have with them. But it is something that, in every case, I have consented to. So, I wanted to kind of speak to a few studies. Um, a lot of the studies that are done on sex regret are, are done with uh, female panelists, are done with uh, female respondents. Um, there was a 2010 study that was done um, and in almost every study, uh, when it comes to, to women, the vast majority of regret that women have concerning one night stands, um, is that it doesn't lead to a relationship, uh, in a 2010 study, female freshman at a Northeastern U.S. university, um, regretted hookup sex, uh, twice as much as they regretted romantic sex. Um, in a 2012 study, um, 78% of women regretted one-night stands versus 72% of men. Um, now, in this study, which is kind of tied to what you were talking about, Vero, the men's regrets were more closely tied to physical attributes. Uh, they had sex with somebody, and after they came, they realized, oh, I'm not really into this chick. I'm not really into her, like, physically, and I kind of regret having sex with her because she's not somebody that I would typically go after. She's not my physical type, so to speak. Um, and it's important to note that in almost every study that's been done, it's focused on heterosexual college-age students. There have been little to no studies that I can find that focus on the queer community, the trans community. What? The queer community is understudied? I'm shocked. I know, right? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> color me surprised. I wonder what yeah. color crayon that would be. Yeah, no but, kidding. So, it's, again, men's regrets towards sex, especially one-night stands, tend to be more closely tied to physical attributes, whereas women tend to regret more that uh, more more attributes that are tied to emotion. Um, that being said, in cases where the sex was reported as being awesome, there is almost no regret reported. So if you have bad sex with someone, you're more likely to regret having sex with them versus if you have awesome sex with them. I think I would have liked to get paid to do that study, Metrico, because I think <laughs> that comes from the no shit Sherlock department. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a very, very sort of obvious statement but you, you would be surprised. Um, and, and we were talking about drug and alcohol and intoxication use, uh, use of intoxicants. In cases where drugs or alcohol uh, were used prior to sexual intercourse, um, both men and women uh, had higher levels of regret. Um, and that was in a, a 2012 study, again, that surveyed both uh, men and women in uh, universities. Um so, what it all kind of boils down to is that, uh, quite frankly, regret tends to come from one of two aspects. Men tend to regret not hooking up with someone. 
Um, that tends to be the evolutionary drive for men. Um, evolutionarily speaking, uh, males and species are there to procreate, 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 and if they miss out on an opportunity to procreate, it's a violation of the evolutionary standard of the evolutionarily of the evolutionary drive. Whereas women tend to regret hooking up, and again, you can tie that to an evolutionary drive where. There's more of a focus on building an emotional connection because you want to have somebody that's there to help support you if you have children. We'll put that aside and we'll just say quite honestly, it's because it's easier for men to have sex because all it takes is us kind of revving up our engines and bada bing bada boom, we're ready to go. Whereas with women, it's a little bit more difficult uh, to, to sort of get in the mood as we've spoken about in the past. Uh, there are different sexual markers, different sexual excitement sort of parameters that have to be stroked, so to speak, um, more foreplay involved. And it could be that because men, especially in college, especially inexperienced with sex, are unfamiliar with really how to please a woman, uh, please, you know, you when you're having sex and instead are a little bit more selfish. And once they get off, they're done, they're spent, they roll over, they go to bed. It could be that that's just a markup of the fact that the sex was not orgasmically mind-blowing. And that's that's quite possibly one of the issues that are there as well. It could just be due to inexperience. And I think that that's something that is kind of, again, not that surprising of a statement. Now, one thing I think is kind of interesting, I you know, I feel like there's this idea that, you know, the more you hook up, the more likely it is that eventually you'll encounter some sexual experience that you're not going to enjoy. And I think that's definitely true to a point. But one thing I would like to kind of push back on there is I think as if you're actually being self-reflective as you're hooking up, there's actually a way of kind of learning exactly what it is you seek in a hookup partner. And eventually you might learn enough about yourself such that you're actually able to tailor your hooking up experiences in such a way that you are able to avoid regretful hookups much more readily. For example, maybe you discover that, well, I always regret sex after, when I have sex when I'm drunk, or I regret sex when I have sex when I'm stoned, or I tend to regret sex when I go to the bathhouse when I'm super horny, and I probably shouldn't do that, right? So maybe you, you learn about situations where you're more likely to put yourself in regretful situations, and by doing so, you actually reduce your likelihood of encountering regretful sex by having more sex. But the, the key difference there is that that comes down to being self-reflective and actually gaining self-knowledge through your experience by, by performing that introspection after the fact. And if you're not performing that introspection, you're not really going to be learning much from what you're doing. And what we're, kind of the general case is true that, you know, it's just a, a numbers game, right? The law of, of large numbers says the more you... you do something, the higher the probability of unlikely events becomes, right? Yeah, and that's true really of any human activity. It could be something as simple as rock climbing, where you're really jazzed up, you think that you would enjoy rock climbing or mountain climbing or scuba diving, and you go through with it and you realize, I didn't actually like that at all. Human activity is riddled with regret because it allows us to determine what we enjoy and what we do not enjoy. And by analyzing those regrets, we can then sort of determine what sorts of activities we want to engage in as fully realized individuals. Um, it's part of the whole self-actualization process. Becoming a self-actualized person is sort of inviting regret into your life to make determinations on what you do enjoy. 
human activity and human experience is essentially a massive scientific experiment. And your life up until the point that you encounter and engage in that experience is the control. And if you discover that the hypothesis is, I think I might enjoy having anonymous bathhouse sex. Let's test the hypothesis. I did not enjoy it. There you go. The scientific study is concluded. You have determined you do not <laughs> enjoy is, it. Yeah. That is, in fact, a falsifiable hypothesis, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you understand. Hypothesis successfully falsified. I do not enjoy this. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like, think of it mm-hmm. as an experiment. And if it, the experiment was successful, if you learned from it, right? So yeah. it's kind of a way of trying to trick yourself into not regretting it so much. If you can learn something from it, if you can benefit from it, maybe it's not so regretful after all. And it's important that we don't stigmatize hooking up because it's not something that you should be ashamed of. It's not something that you should be accused of slutting it up or whatever. There are certain things that you can do ethically. We we do discuss, you know, hookup app etiquette in an earlier episode, in our 31st episode, if you want to give that a listen. There are ways that you can go about ensuring that you don't introduce unknown factors or, uh, you know, unmitigable factors such as cheating on someone uh, that will have a drastically negative impact on your perception of hooking up. Um, there's a good resource that I like to, to browse every now and then. It's uh, the Casual Sex Project, and it's a, it's a user-submitted repository of stories and experiences that people who engage in casual sex, both in individual and group settings, submit for people to view. And it's the, it's the wide range of sexual experiences from positive to negative to regretful and it, it shines a light on the fact that everybody experiences regret when it comes to hooking up everybody regret you know experiences regret when it comes to sex in some fashion or another and it destigmatizes destigmatizes the idea that regret is a bad thing everybody sort of experiences it and it's okay the fact is is that the regret that we have, several studies have shown that the regret is far below a threshold of being severe. Um, it's incredibly minimal levels of regret. Uh, 61% of respondents in a survey, in a study, reported minimal regret. Um, Sorry, Siri decided to uh, activate for me for a second there. Um, 61% reported minimal regret, whereas 23% reported no regret. That's uh, 84%. Um, Whereas 13% reported some regret and 3% reported many regrets. This was done in a wide, large scope study that had three three different groups, and the findings were across the board the same. A vast majority of people regret having low to no regrets when it comes to hooking up. And it's important that we don't allow small, minimal feelings of regret to be blown up into this giant molehill. It's important that we treat those moments as as teaching moments. Again, if you are sexually assaulted, that is not regret sex. That is you being sexually assaulted and you that don't equate the two. Right. Consent is obviously a huge the, the kind of the distinguishing factor there. If, if you consented to the sex and allowed it to happen at the time and didn't, you know, actively, you know, d- decide in your mind that this is something I don't want until afterwards, 
that is what the difference is between sexual assault and regret sex. Now, for regret sex, you do have the advantage of being able to use all the techniques we've been teaching you all along through this podcast to help yourself here. And these are techniques that we borrow from stoicism, mindfulness training, nonviolent communication, all of these things. And one of the key tenets of all of these the mindfulness practices is the idea that you control your response to things that happen to you. And if in this situation, you can choose to interpret what happened to you as a very negative thing and dwell on that and ruminate on negativity, which we know is bad for, your, bad for you scientifically. We know that ruminating on negative emotions is bad for you. Or you can choose to do what we try to tell you to, to do in an earlier episode of the podcast on mindfulness and uh, nonviolent communication, and that is to only look to the past, to only look to things that have already happened to you as learning moments, and to, once you've learned from them, to no longer dwell on the negativity, but instead to recast that event as being positive because you've learned from it. And I think in the case of regret sex, there's a tendency to not want to recast it as being positive because of shame and stigma associated with experiencing kind of icky sexual situations as being, you know, being okay. And there's this tendency that, well, I feel bad about this, therefore I need to maybe round it up to being assault or, or whatever the case might be, because I need to justify these, this kind of the cognitive dissonance I'm having about this ickiness that I'm experiencing regarding the sex. And I think that's kind of what Metrico is getting at, where we don't want to let these feelings of regret get blown out of proportion and let them kind of carry us away. Because when we do that, we set up a situation where we don't really want to be responsible internally for this ickiness and this feeling that we have, and therefore we externalize that responsibility onto our sex partner. And that is where the, the rounding up of regret sex into rape comes from. It's a really tragic form of cognitive dissonance that develops from runaway uh, feelings of shame and regret that occur after kind of sexual situations that maybe didn't live up to their expectations. And we have to be very mindful and careful not to let those negative feelings run away with us. And to be fair, there are certainly things that sometimes our sexual partners kind of are to blame for when it comes to negative sexual experiences. Um, When it comes to one night stands, you don't really necessarily know what you're getting into. There's a plethora of unknowns. Maybe you're just not compatible. Your, Your parts just aren't compatible together. Maybe they have a smaller dick. Maybe their vagina is too tight and it's painful to penetrate. You don't know until it actually happens. Maybe they have just awful hygiene and they smell and it's just gross and it puts you off. Maybe they're disrespectful. Maybe they're just awful at sex. They don't know how to pleasure you and they don't listen. They don't communicate. Maybe you're cheating. There there are all sorts of unknowns that can play a role in and the sex that you have and certainly some of it falls in part with the, your sexual partner but at the end of the day if we want to be sexually active fully realize individuals with agency we have to take some level of accountability for the decisions that we make and we can't as vera was saying externalize the fault or the blame you consent to having sex with a person and you don't enjoy it you have to sort of say yep uh that sucked and learn from it learn to recognize hey this guy was kind of really shitty in bed 
And here are some things that sort of should have clued me onto it. Here are some red flags that I could have identified. Hey, this person really smelled and was just really kind of gross to be close to. And the fact that he told me that he hadn't showered in two days should have been a clue by four. I mean, there are lots of factors. That some people could... might actually be into that. Like, I'm kind of into that a little bit, to be honest. But like, hey, whatever, whatever uh, doesn't float your boat in this case, I guess. Whatever sinks your boat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, whatever sinks the ship, whatever floats the boat, you know, whatever it might be. These are learning teaching moments that you can have for yourself to determine what you look for in a partner, whether that's a one-night stand or whether that's a long-term partner. So really, the question is, congratulations, you've had a one-night stand, you've had a hookup, and you're kind of regretting that decision. How can you move past it? Because we've, we've worked on identifying how to recognize it, how to sort of take responsibility for it, but how do you process it? Vero? Yeah, and I, I kind of talked about that a bit earlier with the mindfulness approach and the stoicism approach uh, that w w uh, comes from recasting it as a positive event if you've learned from it and therefore uh, not ruminating on the negative emotions. And that's kind of the mental approach. But there's also some things you can do physically, and this is where the power of ritual can be extremely useful. And rituals... You know, we think about them in kind of religious context, and I think sometimes in modern society we scoff at the idea of ritual. But a lot of rituals come from really kind of basic uh, human kind of uh, the way that certain we do certain things can have a really strong effect on our emotions. I think it's maybe a good way of putting it. And so performing rituals can have very powerful effects, even without any spiritual or religious connotation to them. And one of the most powerful rituals we have is one that a lot of uh, world religions do recognize as being quite powerful, and through that's through baptism, and that's the idea of uh, taking a kind of ritual bath or a ritual rinse, showering, bathing, uh, going for a swim, dunking in the jacuzzi, whatever it might be, immersing yourself in water has a cleansing property that can actually cleanse your emotions. Isn't that right, Metrico? 100%. So one of the things is, that I always recommend is you've had a one night stand, whether it was positive, whether it was negative, one of the best things you can do for yourself is have yourself a nice little shower. Take a shower, take a bath, you know, maybe go for a swim in a pool if you have one that's available, jacuzzi, whatever it might be. Do something that allows you to sort of cleanse yourself, to immerse yourself. Uh, I prefer showers uh, myself because you can combine that with the idea of, you know, sort of washing yourself with soap, feeling a little bit more relaxed, stretching your body. It's ritual is super important and, and immersing yourself in water, bathing, showering, whatever it might be, it can help you shake off those feelings of grossness. It can also, especially because you tend to take them, um, you know, at a warmer temperature, they can be relaxing. Um, I find that showers tend to calm anxiety that I feel. Um, oftentimes when I'm feeling overly anxious, it's I'll take a bath and sort of just immerse myself and dip my head underwater to kind of drown out the noise. And it helps me to sort of recollect myself and recollect my thoughts and feelings and reorient my, my perspective to one that's a little bit healthier for me in the longer run. Um, during those times, it's it's important to kind of take stock. Is this a person you're going to see again? If not, then, I mean, chalk it up to experience. And that's really all you have to do. You had a one-night stand with a stranger at a bathhouse at a club. 
at a party and it was bad and you're just like, well, I could have gone without that. Chalk it up to experience, learn from it, and move on, because if you ruminate on it, you tend to judge yourself more harshly than you deserve. Yeah, completely. That's kind of what I was saying earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. But now, if it is somebody that you're going to see again, that does require a slightly different approach, because you can't entirely write it off. You're going to be encountering this individual. And if you're going to be encountering them in a social or professional context, let's say you slept with your boss, or you slept with a co-worker, or... You know, you maybe slept with, you know, your best friend's sister or, you know, whatever it might be. This might be a situation that kind of breeds awkwardness, right? So you're going to need to power through that. And, you know, one thing you're going to, you know, want to do is draw some very clear boundaries with this individual if they are under a different impression of how the sex went than you are. In many cases, it could very well be that you both ended up regretting the sex and therefore that can actually make it less awkward. And you can break the ice by just going up to that person afterwards and saying, hey, you know, I was really drunk last night. I, I know you were pretty drunk too. We probably shouldn't have done that, right? And that's kind of a way of signaling to the person that, hey, I don't want to repeat that. I don't wasn't really happy with how it went. I, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really good for either of us. And it kind of puts the blame off of them and puts the blame off of you. It's kind of just a way of chalking it up to, well, the universe threw us a curveball last night and that wasn't so great, right? And I think that's actually a really uh, great way of approaching the situation uh, is by kind of coming at the person not with an accusation, not coming at them with, you did this thing, right? Because that can, that can, again, kind of sound like rounding it up to sexual assault sort of uh, problem. But if instead you just admit, hey, I mean, I'm sure you probably regretted this as much as I did, but we probably shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't do that again. That takes the culpability and kind of splits it evenly between you. It's a very again, nonviolent way of approaching the situation, but it's also a very direct way of communicating that this is not going to happen again, and you're establishing clear boundaries for yourself. This is not going to happen again. And I think it's very important to do that because that's going to relieve a lot of anxiety and stress that you might otherwise encounter upon seeing this individual in social contexts. Absolutely. And again, it's important to stress the point that sex does not a relationship make, and it is up to your determination to decide whether or not you want to pursue a relationship. Just because you have sex with a friend, with a neighbor, with a coworker, with a boss, whomever it might be, does not immediately mean that you have to start pursuing a relationship. We are not living in an era where you have to get married in order to preserve your honor. That's kind of the beautiful thing about the United States and Western society in general. You have the agency to say, I had sex with you and I didn't like it and we are not going to date. And that is the end of it. And you should take advantage of that. If you don't want to date somebody, you don't have to date somebody. If you don't want to have sex with somebody again, you don't have to have sex with them again. I would stress that the first time if you regret the sex, that's just sex regret. If they continue to pursue you, fondle you, grab you, then they're molesting you, then they are raping you, then they are sexually assaulting you. Therein is the difference. You are revoking your consent. If they continue to pursue you, that's when you might have to get authorities involved, maybe get some form of a protection order, get some form, if they actually sexually assault you, get some form of uh, prosecution evidence started up against them. But if you're clear and you're firm about your boundaries and you say, we had sex, I sort of regret it. I'm pretty sure you regret it. Um, let's not do that again. And it's going to be kind of awkward for a bit, perhaps, but let's try to stay friends. Or in some cases, maybe it's best we don't talk to each other for a while. 
Maybe it's best we're just two ships that are now crossing in the night. It's important that you set those firm boundaries, and it's important that you analyze it and you ensure that you are firm in giving that information. You want to give it so there is no room for misinterpretation, because if you use vague sort of statements and you don't assert your emotional boundaries and your integrity in a firm fashion, that can sometimes be open to misinterpretation, as we've spoken about before. Yeah, this is not the time to demure, and frankly, this is the type of situation that can uh, make yourself uh, more vulnerable to sexual assault and rape. If you are not able to establish those boundaries and say, hey, I don't want that to happen again, if the other person is under the impression that the sex went really well, they're very likely to pursue a repeat, and then pursuing that repeat experience with you could very easily become a sexual assault situation now that you know that you don't want the sex with this person any longer. So uh, you, I think just to protect yourself and to avoid a potentially dangerous situation for yourself, you want to establish those boundaries as clearly and directly as you possibly can. 100%. And also, some things that, that I'd like to mention is that you don't have to talk about the experience with anybody if you don't want to. If you had sex and you regret it and you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to talk to people about it. You can use your own discretion. If you don't want to kind of share with your friends, you don't have to share with your friends. There's no imperative that you talk about bad sex that you've had that you wish maybe you had not had there there's no moral imperative there and also one your mileage may vary though with relationship terms that yeah call for disclosure i mean that can be a bit of a, a, a situation where maybe you do have to describe it but you don't necessarily have to describe how you felt about the sex right i mean you can just say hey mm -hmm. i had sex and this is what happened and, it's and probably never happening again with this yeah, person. right exactly <laughs> and, and you don't necessarily have to go into the fact that you regretted it and oh my gosh look it was awful because in some situations this is actually a weird thing too but i've experienced this myself um mm -hmm. describing sex to a partner is actually it's actually easier for them to get over the fact that you had sex with uh, in an open relationship it's easier for your partner to get over the fact that you had sex with somebody if they're the type who tends to jealousy if they think that you enjoyed it than if they think that you didn't. And the reason for this is, if they think that you they enjoyed it, they can at least experience some compersion, and that can actually help them deal with the jealousy. If you tell them about the sex and then emphasize how much you didn't like it, they're going to feel like, well, why the fuck did I have to go through this then? Like, it's almost <laughs> like, I, you know what I mean? It's like, well, why the hell did I have to suffer this, through this harrowing night of, of feeling jealous if you weren't even going to have fun? Like, goddammit. So, honestly, you can be doing your, both you and your partner a favor by not necessarily uh, dwelling on the, the negative aspects of the emotional response to the sex that you had. And that's not to say that you have to be emotionally dishonest with your partner or that you can't be emotionally transparent. Certainly you can be. But I'm just saying from my own personal experience, uh, go, the lady might protest too much if she goes on and on and on about how unenjoyable the sex was. That can be kind of hard for a partner to hear. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, I guess maybe I should have cached my, my, my statement there by saying if you are in a relationship that is open and allows for sex with other partners yeah make sure you hold firm to those to those <laughs> you know terms and agreements and understandings and you know yeah i don't i don't i don't want to be lifting out of context yeah. with metric was said i had no moral imperative to tell anyone <laughs> like no oh. yeah yeah <laughs> no, if you're if, you, if you, for. <laughs> yeah no what i'm saying is if you are a single individual and you had a hookup that was just a poor experience you're single you don't have to tell people about it you'd be like yeah i had sex last night and that's the end of it you don't have yeah. to go into like oh my god you won't believe how bad his breath smelled exactly you, you don't, don't have to go into it yeah exactly. um, 
one other thing that I do want to note is because with hooking up with casual sex, there is also the increased likelihood of exposure to STIs. If you are concerned about your exposure to STIs, schedule a visit to your clinic, your general practitioner, to Planned Parenthood, to wherever you would go to have a sex, you know, a panel for sexually transmitted infections to be done. Um, that can especially be the case if it turns out you had unprotected sex. So make sure that you protect your sexual health as part of your sexual agency. Um, but really, you know, the point of all of this is regret sex, it happens to a lot of people. The, the idea that sex regret is common is something that isn't really discussed all that much because people don't like to think about the idea that we will have encounters, sexual encounters with people that aren't awesome and we sometimes regret. But when we talk about our first time, like the time that we lost our virginity almost universally everybody's like yeah it wasn't that great <laughs> i think part of the issue there is it's generally speaking regret sex happens when we don't live up to our own ideals that tends to be when this happens right it's you know maybe you tell yourself i don't hook up or you tell yourself i only have sex with people i emotionally invested in and we have this narrative for ourselves this really rosy cheery narrative that's kind of like, well, I'm, you know, I, I only have sex in, under these circumstances. And then one night you get horny and you have sex under a different set of circumstances, right? And then afterwards, you don't feel so great about it. I think this happens, I mean, this, yeah. you can even have regret masturbation, right? I mean, I've, I think we've all experienced that too, where maybe you're jerking off to that super weird tentacle porn and then suddenly you're like, whoa, what the hell, did, what the hell was I doing? What the fuck? What, what was I doing? <laughs> right? That, that's a very right, common experience. Right. So, you know, that can happen with a partner just as easily as it can happen while you're by yourself, right? And, you know, you just have to get over that and realize, you know what? Sometimes you're going to do things that you didn't think you were capable of doing. And that, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you're any that you're outside the norm or anything like that. Because we all step out of our usual sexual repertoire sometimes. We all do things that we wouldn't normally do for the sake of getting off sometimes. Because... You know, as Dan Savage likes to say, sex has us. We don't really have sex, right? Um, and that, that, that does tend to be the case. I think sex is a very powerful drive in humans, and oftentimes it can take the driver's seat. And when it does that, and you do things that you wouldn't, you regret or that you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have chosen to do under more sober circumstances, um, you just have to roll with that, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a really good place to leave off, because... You know, this is a very nuanced topic, but really it's something that I think we can all agree on, that sometimes we have sexual encounters that don't go the way that we expected. Um, sometimes we have masturbation that turns into a disasterbation. And what's important is that we recognize the fact that we are, you know, sexual entities as humans. And we learn from our experiences and we sort of move on from them. One thing, again, to leave off is if you are the victim of sexual assault, please seek help from the authorities as soon as possible. That's I just want to drive that point far and clear. But if you are an individual that had a sexual encounter that did not go as expected and you regret having it, take stock in yourself and learn from the experience and don't equate the two. We're going to move on to some feedback. Uh, last week, we had a question on fictophilia, and the questioner actually wrote back with some feedback. Um, 
I realize what I wrote could have been easily misconstrued, so that's on me. Though it might seem like I'm trying to fix her problem, I am not. I'm letting her deal with it on her own, I know to do that much. As for her having fictophilia being a lie, we met online when she was reaching out to people for help with it. Uh, she was frustrated with lack of sleep and slipping grades. And knowing that it wouldn't be too much of a good idea to get involved, I gave her the equivalent of a pat on the back and we became friends. It was foolish of me to fall in love with her when I knew it could not be. Also, maybe it was just wishful thinking on my part when I said we could be happy together when I knew full well there was no way of, you know, re real way of telling. Knowing all of this, I will take your advice and move on. I think that's actually really good to hear. We don't often get people who write back to us and say mm -hmm. whether or not they actually took our stupid faggot advice. So it's nice to actually hear someone tell us whether how they actually decided to use the information we decided we chose to impart to them. So I'm glad to hear that you had a positive uh, experience with what we said and we'll be able to kind of take a kind of colder eye to the situation you were in. I'm glad you were able to kind of self-reflect and figure out that out for yourself. So props to you. Uh, that's really that's really positive. Yeah. And thank you for the clarification on some of the, the things that you wrote in about. Um, I do know that we sort of interpreted what you had written as being essentially you feeling entitled to a relationship when in fact it turns out it was just you perhaps um, using the incorrect words and so our apologies if it seems like we were attacking you and i'm glad that you're able to move on and find somebody that is able to reciprocate the feelings that you would have for her um, we're going to move on to our question for the week though the questioner wrote in with the subject of cheated on so I just discovered that my boyfriend of five years has been cheating on me, or I should say was cheating with me, because I appear to be the third of at least four others he calls his boyfriend. I've never been tricked for so long in my life, and I don't know what, when, or why. He doesn't know that I know yet, and I don't even know how to confront this. Help. Who? Yeah, so that's not a great situation to be in. Um, that I mean, my response to that would probably be vomiting into a toilet for about three nights straight, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, so that's not a great feeling. Um, the way to confront the situation is that it's a very tricky situation. I would recommend not going the route of, you know, gotcha. Um, that's not going to be a very healthy or constructive way to start the conversation. It's going to put him on a very defensive footing. And it's pretty much just going to make the entire conversation extremely confrontational and probably stressful for both of you. So I would avoid uh, doing that. And I would kind of turn to, again, our nonviolent communication skills and start with some I statements. So, you know, I felt X when I discovered Z, right? And in this situation, you don't, I mean, we always talk about when you're, with that part when I, that part right there, the blank that follows when I blank. You want to keep that to five five or so words. You don't need to get into the nitty-gritty and talk about exactly all of the things he did that were wrong, that make you feel bad, because he knows exactly what he did. He doesn't need to hear you give a litany of it. It's just going to make him feel guilty and shitty. So um, if your goal is not, in fact, to make him feel guilty and shitty, but instead to kind of get to the bottom of this and have a conversation, keep it short. So I felt really sad, disheartened, disgusted. I felt revolted, I felt, you know, whatever your emotion might be, you can put whatever name on it you'd like, when I discovered that you've had additional partners I've not known about for a number of years, or 
you know, whatever, however you choose to summarize the situation. But keep that summary brief. Don't dwell on the nitty-gritty details, which will just sound like you bludgeoning him with things he'll feel guilty about. And instead, keep the conversation about your feelings in the present. Don't talk about your feelings in the past or, you know, things in the past that, you know, affected you. Because the only thing that you can change that has any bearing on, on the future is the, the present. So keep the conversation focused on your feelings in the present and keep the description of the past events that he's commit, he's done that you don't aren't obviously aren't okay with. Keep that description short so that it's not, he doesn't feel like you're bludgeoning him with a litany of, of evil actions he's committed. And that will then give him the best possible chance to come clean with you in a way that you might find uh, emotionally satisfying, if not so that you can continue the relationship with him, at least so that you can obtain some emotional closure on the relationship by understanding a bit more of his motivations and maybe even receiving an apology, because you're much more likely to receive that apology if you come at him in a way that doesn't make him feel like total crap and completely guilty, because when people are put in that situation, they're just as likely to respond with anger and cognitive dissonance that results in them demonizing you rather than actually accepting responsibility and apologizing to you. So demonizing them by going on and on and on about the things they've done that are not okay or that are immoral or wrong in your eyes is not the way to start the conversation if you want the conversation to be a positive one. Right, and I would stress that you have to look at your own emotional boundaries and your own integrity to determine if this is a relationship that you believe you could continue in. You've made a few years of an investment into it, and it's it's really up to you. If this is something that you believe that you can continue being in, then you should definitely use nonviolent communication. Even if it's something that you know you're just like, I can't continue on this, you should still use nonviolent communication because at the end of the day, you don't want to exacerbate a negative situation any further by being your own version of negative. So use nonviolent communication and... Before you even begin the conversation, make a determination as to whether or not you feel you can continue. You should also make a determination as to whether or not you want to reach out to the other individuals that are involved with your boyfriend. Um, I would recommend if you make that decision that you do so in a way that is strictly informative. You don't want to be like, yo, so this cheating asshole, you should just say, hey, just so you are aware, I discovered that you know, you're involved with so-and-so. I've been involved with them for the past few years. I've been made aware that there are a few other individuals that are also involved. I don't know what he's told you, but you might want to have a conversation about your relationship with him, just like I'm having a conversation with him now. Yeah, that's great advice, Metrico, and thank you for presenting that angle as well. It is it's definitely something to consider reaching out to the other individuals in the situation. Uh, in, in essence, you're metamors. We'd call them metamors if it was a polyamory situation, but this is emphatically not polyamory because it's not ethical non-monogamy, right? Polyamory, to be polyamory, in my according to my definition, requires the enthusiastic consent of all parties involved, and that was that's kind of notoriously yes. absent in this uh, situation. Um, so we got to be yeah. got to be careful not to, to you borrow too many loan words from polyamory here. But these are essentially shadow metamors, right? So you, if you want to reach out to your shadow metamorph yes. and say, hey, we're all in the same boat here, what, what, what are we going to do about this? Um, that might be an interesting conversation to have. But again, keep it factual, like Metrico said. Keep the nonviolent communication skills flowing. Use I statements there, too. And uh, keep the, again, keep the focus on the present and not so much on, you know, isn't he an asshole for all these things he's done over the last five years? Instead, keep the focus on what are we going to do about this, right? Because that's, that's actually going to be the constructive and helpful part of the conversation. Absolutely. Good luck with having that conversation, and I would recommend taking some time to consider what you think would be the best action and the best possible resolution to this situation that you found yourself in. Just good luck, and 
If you need any further advice, if you have questions about nonviolent communication, we would recommend listening to our episode on that or reaching out to us with specific questions. We're going to go ahead, though, and end the episode there. Next week, we're going to talk about lifestyling. This is a topic that we've gotten several questions about. When we talk about lifestyling in terms of BDSM, in terms of dom-sub-style relationships, or even within the fandom itself, how can you lifestyle your desired sort of passion? Whether, again, it's the furry fandom, whether it's BDSM, whether it's... You know, whatever it might be, we're going to talk about lifestyling, why it can be fun, ways that you can achieve it, and how to strike a balance with lifestyling and having a professional sort of... And if you're us, you just completely give up on life and have a furry podcast, which means that you're a lifestyler forever. We're now essentially trapped in the furry fandom, everyone. It's not a great, it's not a great time. Uh, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should like pull, it, pull it too and just declare the fandom dead. That, that will solve the problem. No, 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 no. No, I don't want to do a 50-minute video full of bullshit where he's like, millennials have ruined the fandom and it's all, you know, the burned furs were right. I couldn't help myself. I tweeted at him, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. And I, I, it's just, I, I couldn't help myself. God, <laughs> I mean, like, you would think Griffins, you know, in terms of, like, the mythos, they're not, like, carrion eaters but he sure loves eating away at that dead horse that he has. Holy cow. If the fandom is dead, why is he still here? Leave it to us vultures, goddammit. Next week it's going to be... He likes having a zombie audience, apparently. (laughs) True, fair enough. Like, they can't clap because they're dead. Like, um, all right. But next week we're going to talk about lifestyling and hopefully less about, too, the the bullshit griffin. Um... (laughs) If you have questions for us, feedback on this episode, if you disagree vehemently with what we've had to say, if you have an alternative point of view and you would like for us to be made aware of it, hit us up on our contact page, feralattraction.com slash contact. You can get in touch with us anonymously. You can get in touch with us. You know, if you want us to know who you are, you can do that too. Um, I will say, generally speaking, if you want to enter into a dialogue with us, it's best to sign your name to it because anonymous comments kind of sort of don't get paid that much attention to. Um, there are so many ways to get into touch with us on that page, though. Uh, ask F- Well, not Ask FM. We have a curious cat now, I believe. Uh, you can call us, Twitter DMs. You can join our Telegram groups. We do still have an Ask FM, by the way. I've been maintaining oh. that for a while. But it, oh. we, it, gets, it gets used occasionally. <laughs> oh, well, color me wrong. <laughs> You can also find out ways that you can support the show on our contact page. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store and leave a rating and a review. You can even subscribe and become a patron of ours on Patreon. We have many tiers available. Your donations help us to support the infrastructure, support the advertising, support the research. Your donations have gone to helping us continue to do the show while Vero is traveling abroad. Indeed. The more tiers you contribute to, the fewer tiers we have to shed, right, Metrico? Exactly. And you don't want us to be incredibly salty, believe you me, because then the deer will come and lick us all away. We have, as I said, different tiers. One of the tiers on our Patreon is to get shoutouts at the end of every show. One such patron of ours is Miss Hyde. Now, Miss Hyde, last month, participated in a streak for the tigers around the London Zoo. Uh, 
She raised money and ran around the zoo naked in an attempt to protect tigers in their natural habitats. Uh, she has raised close to half of what she wanted to, so if you're feeling in a charitable mood and you want to save the tigers, which that's a good cause to donate to, you should consider giving her a donation. All of that information is in our show notes, or you can visit her Twitter account, which is at Sparks for more details. Snares is another one of our patrons, longtime patron of ours, and he has a Patreon of his own that serves as a one-stop shop for all commission and artist info that he has. Patreon.com slash snares. It's for comic uh, projects, page updates for his comic. It's a crowdfunded comic and also commissions that you can purchase. He's an amazing artist and you should definitely consider getting a commission from him. Or if you're a fan of the written work, then you might consider subscribing to Sir Paul as he has published a novel called The Pride of Parahumans, which was published by the Thurston Hell Press and recently reviewed on the Dogpatch Press website. He has a Patreon of his own, uh, patreon.com forward slash Zarpolis. If you're a fan of furry and high-tech sci-fi stories, then you would probably be a fan of his work, the Para-Imperium universe. Or if you're looking for a new friend on Twitter, Myron the Fluffy is probably your new best friend. Feel free to follow for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings. Their Twitter handle is at Myron the Fluffy. Again, all of this information is within the show notes that is included in every episode or on our website on our dedicated show notes uh, page. That's going to be it for this episode of Feral Attraction. Again, next week we're going to talk about lifestyling. Until then, I'm Metrico. And that's... And I'm Veer of the Science Collie. And that's Veer of being muted. <laughs> Indeed, I was quite muted there. Uh, Oopsie. Oopsie poopsie. Way to ruin the... There's a little bonus, little bonus content at the end of me being an idiot. Uh, that's <laughs> to be fair, it's like, what, 2.30 in the morning for you at this point? And my mother's snoring in the background, which has also, I'm sure, been delightful the entire episode, but it's, it's totally cool. Well, on behalf of me to your mother and to all of our listeners, be well.